Well, this morning we are continuing our look at the Gospel of John. If you've been with us, you know that we are somewhat nearing the end. We have been looking at what is called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus and his apostles had uh, celebrated the Passover, what we call the Last Supper, together, and and Jesus has been giving them amazing uh, truth in this upper room. Last week, uh, it's my belief that, uh, that Jesus and his disciples or his 11 apostles that are left uh, have now left that upper room and had passed through as he continued his teaching in John 15. They were winding their way through the streets of Jerusalem headed to the outskirts of the valley there, the Kidron Valley, eventually making their way across to what we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. Our text this morning is in John chapter 15 as well. We are going to be looking today at verses 9 through 17. If you have a Bible with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open it up and and follow along as I preach. If you don't have a Bible but would like to use one, if you look in the seats in front of you, underneath, you'll find a Bible under there, and if you're using that Bible, you will find our passage on page 902. Hear the word of the Lord. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Jesus has just shared some pretty mind-blowing truth with them. He's just shared with them at the beginning of chapter 15 that he is the true vine and that they are the branches. Jesus was comparing himself in that moment to Israel. The nation of Israel uh, had been called the vine or the vineyard of God and yet had failed in its mission to proclaim and to represent Yahweh to the rest of the nations. And so Jesus came along and said, I am the true vine. I am the true son that Israel failed to be. I am the true son that Adam failed to be. Jesus has come to represent everything that the Old Testament pointed to. And here, Jesus makes another absolutely astonishing claim. He says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, Christian, just let that sink in for a moment. 
I mean, we know from going through the Gospel of John just how intimate the relationship is between Father and Son. In fact, from the very first verse in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That word that is often translated with, it means in Greek towards God, that the Word had a very intimate relationship with the Father from before the world began. Now when we think of Jesus' love for us, we think of it, at, rightly so, in terms of his sacrificial love for us. And Jesus will go on, as we'll see in this passage, to reference his sacrificial love. But notice here he's saying, just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, if we're thinking only of Jesus' sacrificial love, it seems that it couldn't be that way in which the Father has loved Jesus. I mean, after all, the Father didn't lay down his life for the Son. The Father certainly didn't have to go to the cross to pay for the sins of the Son. So when Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, what is he talking about? Well, one of the ways that he could be talking is that the Father loved Jesus and has loved Jesus perfectly, as only God can. You see, God, Scripture says, is love. And so God does not measure up to some standard of love outside of himself. Rather, love is measured by God. God cannot stop being love because God is his attributes. It's what scholars refer to when they speak of God's simplicity. When we speak of God's simplicity, or when theologians speak of that, they're not saying that God is simple as like a one-celled amoeba is simple. No, in that sense, God is incredibly complex, far more than each one of us. But when they speak of God's simplicity, what they mean is that God is all of his attributes all the time and cannot cease being all of his attributes lest he cease being God. You see, when we speak of ourselves, we as human beings can lose attributes and still be us. I spoke of uh, having that accident uh, back in August, late August uh, when I my head slammed into the surf uh, when I was riding a wave and felt like I could have been paralyzed easily. God spared me from that. But had I been paralyzed, had I lost the, the, the use of my arms and legs, I would have lost an attribute of myself, but would have remained me. I just would have been paralyzed. Or you can think of it uh, in other physical attributes. Someone might lose their sight or their hearing and yet still be themselves. Morally speaking, I can sometimes be loving to Michelle, or sometimes I can be less than loving to Michelle, and yet I'm still me. God, on the other hand, cannot lose any of his attributes and continue to be God. God is love, and if he stopped being love, then he would stop being God. Jesus, being God, loves as God loves. And so Jesus has loved us and will love us perfectly, as God the Father 
has loved him. Now again, just let that sink in for a moment, Christian, because you may be someone here today who is a Christian and yet in the realm of the horizontal realm of human-to-human relation, you may feel this morning as though you have never truly been loved by another human being. Perhaps you came from a dysfunctional family. Perhaps you never knew your mother or your father. Perhaps you knew them, and yet they didn't love you very well. And yet, if you know Christ, then this morning know that you have been perfectly loved as no one else could love. In fact, Jesus even says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And by putting it this way, I mean, Jesus could have said, uh, I love you, and I'm sure that would have been true. But by saying, so have I loved you, he's inviting these men to think back over the last three years And to think of all the times that Christ has shown them perfect love. By this time tomorrow, they will witness the ultimate act of love as he goes to the cross to pay for their sins. And so Jesus urges them, remain in my love. Here we see abide in my love. It's again that same word, remain. And Just as I said last week that we didn't attach ourselves to the vine, but by God's grace were attached to the vine and yet are called to abide in the vine, so again we have to see that same command applies to this. Jesus does not say, you must earn my love. We have been given the love of Christ, but we are called to remain in his love. You see, in the order of things, Christ's love comes first. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, if Jesus is calling us to remain in his love, how do we do that? Well, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We know that the Father loved Jesus. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you see the Father proclaim his love for the Son twice. Once at Jesus' baptism and once at the transfiguration. A voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son. And Jesus is telling his apostles that he remained in his Father's love by obeying his father's commands. Now, what were his father's commandments? What did Jesus come to earth to obey? Well, he came to earth to obey the law. And if we look back in the Old Testament, we see the law uh, all over the place. The law is summarized primarily in the Ten Commandments. But if you want an even shorter definition of the law, Jesus gives it. Jesus sums up the entire law essentially by saying the law is this, you must love. You must love God. You must love God not a little bit, but you must love God with all of your heart, 
all of your soul, all of your strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, then you have obeyed God's law, which, if any of us are honest, immediately shatters any kind of uh, false conception that we have obeyed God's law even for one second of our lives. Jesus' mission, again, was to be the second Adam, to be the second Israel, in a sense, to be uh, the Adam and the Israel that they failed to be, to obey God where they failed and to succeed where they failed. When God proclaims at age 30, when Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God is proclaiming to the whole world that Jesus, every second of his life, had up till that point obeyed his father perfectly and had fulfilled the law. Jesus obeyed the law fully, and when we come to faith in Christ, we are then credited with Jesus' perfect obedience. And then that means that when we obey Christ as those who have been attached to the vine, as those who have been given His Spirit, as those who have been given His righteousness, we are obeying Christ from a position of having already been forgiven and credited with the perfect righteous record of Christ. And perhaps you can see the difference here in that Jesus says that I keep the Father's commandments and that you are to keep, we are to keep Jesus's commands. Again, Jesus came to perfectly fulfill the law, but we remain in his love by keeping his commands. How? By obeying. It's interesting that because Jesus loved us first, and because Jesus loved us perfectly, if we don't remain in his love, understand that it won't be because his love for us wanes. It will be rather because our love for him wanes. It will be because we choose sin over him. Consider the foolishness of sin, Christian. I mean, we all struggle with sin, but if you, if you just boil sin down to its root, then every time we sin, we are choosing to love someone else or something else more than the person who loved us perfectly. We are choosing to love someone or something else more than the only one who has ever loved us perfectly. Notice that the end goal of our obedience to Christ is not drudgery, but joy. Jesus wants us to obey him, not so that we earn his love, but so that we have joy in the journey. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, I appreciated his comment on this. He says this, no one is more miserable than a Christian who for a time hedges in his obedience. This is how he puts it. This Christian does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures. He's been 
you know, his, he's had his heart changed. He's, he's been given the Holy Spirit. He, he no longer runs wholeheartedly after sin like he used to. So he doesn't in love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures, but yet he does not love Christ enough to relish holiness. He perceives that his rebellion is iniquitous. Yeah, of course, what I'm doing right now is, is going against God. I, I understand that, but, but obedience at the time seems distasteful to him. He does not feel at home any longer in the world, because he's been pulled out of the world, but the memory of his past associations and the tantalizing lyrics of his old music prevent him from singing with the saints. He is a man most to be pitied. See, Christian, the question that I ask myself this week and the, the question that I ask you this morning is, do you want joy in your life? Do you feel as though you are lacking joy? Jesus would urge you this morning, if you want joy, strive to obey your Lord. The more that you live in that state of disobedience that D.A. Carson talked about, the more miserable you will feel. What gave Jesus the most joy? What did Jesus delight in doing his Father's will? That's what he said. I, I came here to do my Father's will. It was his food and drink. It was what he lived for. So what are Jesus' commands? He says, look, if you want to abide in my love, do what I command. Well, what are they? Well, we, we see a number of commands if, if we read through the Gospels, but, but here... As he is, again, as they are exiting the city on the night that he would be betrayed, he breaks it down really to one, one command, love one another as I have loved you. Again, we see here that in the order of things, Christ's love comes first. The command that Jesus gives is that we are to love other believers as we have been loved by Jesus. Now, what kind of love is Jesus talking about here? If he's talking about loving one another perfectly, as he has loved us perfectly, of course we're going to fail in that. But I think what Jesus is referring to here is his sacrificial love. And I think Jesus makes that clear with the next statement, verse 13. You see, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Our culture speaks of love all the time. We see it in movies and TV and song, and love is, is talked about all over the place. But oftentimes when our society and our culture is speaking about love, they're speaking primarily of a feeling, a way that you might feel for someone that might wane at some point. But see here, the greatest love, as Christ talks, is, is not a feeling, rather it is a willing not a coerced action on behalf of someone else. See, it's one thing to accidentally give your life. It's one thing to be forced to give your life. But this greatest love that Jesus is talking about here is not, despite Whitney Houston, is not learning to love yourself. 
The greatest love of all is instead willingly laying down your life on behalf of someone else. And it was demonstrated most perfectly on the cross, 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, God has not called me at this point in my life to physically lay down my life to save someone else. That may be the case one day. But in many, many other ways, God has called me to lay down my own selfish will on behalf of others. And there's been no relationship in my life that has more challenged my own selfishness than marriage. There has been no relationship in my life that has more challenged my own selfishness than fatherhood has. If I hadn't gotten married, if I had never had any children, believe me, I would be far more self-centered than I am now. And God is still daily wringing out my own self-centeredness and selfishness by having to live 24-7 with brothers and sisters in Christ. But what we saw today is important, even today as we welcomed two new members. Because you may be a Christian who is single. You may be a Christian who is married and yet has no children You see, there is one place where every Christian, married or single, children or no, can find plenty of opportunities to both give and receive this kind of selfless love, and that is the local church. In fact, I would argue that that really, practically speaking, it is the only place where we can live this out. Where else other than the local church, could you obey this command? Jesus says, I want you to love one another sacrificially as I have loved you. If you are a Christian who is not actively involved in a local church, where would you obey this command? Where could you regularly give sacrificially to other Christians? Where would you regularly have the opportunity to make a meal and take it to a mother who just gave birth? Where would you have the opportunity to put your arm around a fellow believer and weep with them and pray with them? Or invite someone over to your house for a meal? Or go to someone's house who is a shut-in and help them by taking out uh, clutter in their home? Where but in the local church? Do you find these opportunities? To put it another way, if you're not an active member in a local church, how do you practically obey this main command to love one another as I have loved you? Jesus says this in 14 and 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends all that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Christian, what does it mean to you this morning that Jesus calls you his friend? 
John Calvin says this, there is no one so rich, so strong, so well off, so thoroughly provided for as the person of whom Christ says, this is my friend. Jesus, you could read this to be saying that you earn his friendship through obedience. But I think instead, Jesus is telling us that our love for one another will be evidence to others that we are his friends, that we have been made his friends through being engrafted into him by faith. You see, earlier in John 13, Jesus said something very similar to what I just said. He said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples for the love that you have for one another. Jesus is saying, how is the world going to know that you are truly my disciples? It's when they see in the church believers loving one another sacrificially. And here I think he's saying something very similar. You are my friends. You will be recognized as my friends for the love that you show for one another. Just as bearing fruit demonstrates that we are Jesus' true disciples, so loving one another demonstrates that we are his friends. Now, some things to note about this friendship that we have with Jesus. First of all, note in here that this friendship is really rooted in his revealing himself to us. It's very different, I think, than, than most friendships that we, that we have. Jesus tells these men that he counts them as his friends, and so he has revealed himself to them in ways that he doesn't reveal himself to others, who he doesn't count as friends. And we see this in Scripture. Matthew 13, the disciples came to Jesus and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. When we read through Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians, what does Paul tell us? He says, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Now we have received not the things of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given to us by God. You see, the natural person who doesn't have the Spirit does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, nor is he able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But we have the mind of Christ. It, see, I think it's important for us to understand this friendship that we have with Jesus lest we be tempted to think that our friendship with Jesus is just like our friendship with every other human being. But you see, it's not. And in some very important ways. Notice, first of all, that our friendship to Jesus never negates his lordship over us. It does not negate his lordship. You can see this in the very statement itself. What does Jesus say? You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have any other friends like that. I mean, do you? <laughs> do you have any human friends that are your friend 
if you do whatever they command. No, but it makes perfect sense in our friendship with Jesus. The fact that our friendship to Jesus never negates his lordship means, secondly, that our friendship to Jesus is not reciprocal in the way that we normally think, again, of friendship. When you read through the Bible, there are really, there's really only one, possibly two, depending on how you read it, people in the Old Testament who are referred to as friends of God. One is Abraham. Isaiah 41, you Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Abraham is called the friend of God, and James recounts that. James chapter 2, scripture was fulfilled when it said Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. He's really the only one who's directly called a friend of God. The other one who, by implication, might be called God's friend is Moses. In Exodus 33:11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But what's interesting is that nowhere in Scripture, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, is God called anyone's friend. People are called God's friend, but God is never called anyone's friend. See, it's important to note that though the Bible refers to us as Jesus' friend, it doesn't refer to him as our friend. Now, before we walk away sad, if we define friendship, if we define friend, or if we measure the term friend by who loves us the most, if we measure the term friend by who sacrificed the most for us. If we measure the term friend by who is the most faithful to us, through thick and thin, who will never leave us or forsake us, then in Christ we have the greatest friend we could ever have. But you see, what we have to understand is that Jesus is never to be thought of as our chum that sometimes we boss around. You see, he is never our friend if he does what we command. And yet, sometimes I think that's how we tend to think of him. I don't, I don't mean we actively think that way. I don't, I don't know how many Christians wake up every day and, and think, I'm going to command Jesus today. I'm going to boss him around. But how many of us practically live that way? How many of us ask yourselves, spend more time, if you were to weigh out your hours in the week, how many of us spend more time asking or hoping that Jesus would give us what we want rather than pouring over the scriptures to find out what he wants from us and seeking to do that with our lives? Think about it. Christian, I mean, prayer is important. And we ought to pray and ask God for what he wants. But what is it that in the Lord's Prayer he tells us to pray for first? Before we ask him for anything else, we are to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
See, I think that maybe this has been the case throughout all ages, perhaps it has been, but I think in the modern American church, there has been a slight shift toward a certain casualness to God. And I don't mean casualness in in the way that we dress, although sometimes that may uh, betray a casualness that we have in our heart, but more in the way that we think of God. Christian, in whatever way that Jesus is our friend, remember that he never ceases to be our Lord, first and foremost. I think he reminds them of that, in a sense, in what he says next, because these apostles have been told all of these immense privileges that they have in him, that that they've been united to the vine, that, that he loves them as the Father loves him. He's reminding them that he's revealed himself to them in a special way, and If I'm there and I'm them and I'm hearing these things, perhaps I might be tempted to start thinking that I'm something special. That maybe he's doing all this for me because I'm so great. And if that is possibly what they were thinking, then look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Again, if you want to think about Jesus as our friend, how many human friends say this kind of thing to you? I mean, you go out to lunch with your friend, and he says, listen, I just want to remind you, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Our relationship is because of what I did for you. No no human friend does that. Only Jesus says these kind of things. And all we need to do to know that this is true is look back at the gospel accounts to see that Jesus called each of these men individually, that he chose them. They did not choose him. These men were pursuing whatever they thought was good in life. They were, whether it be fishing or tax collecting or whatever it is they were doing, and And he walked up to them and and said, follow me. And from that moment on, when they dropped whatever else they had been doing and they decided to follow him, their lives changed forever. Whatever else was at the center of their lives until Jesus called them, he was now at the center of their life. Whatever else they pursued most of their day and whatever else occupied most of their day, it was now following Jesus, going where he goes, doing what he commands, learning from him, and having a new purpose in life. Now, it may have seemed to them that they chose him. Maybe as they thought about how things went, they thought, yeah, I remember Jesus came up to me. And I remember he asked me to follow him, and, and when he asked me that and, and told me he wanted me to follow him, I, I waited out. I thought about whether it would really be worth it to follow him and, and leave the fishing career that I had or leave the tax collecting career that I had. And, you know, once I waited out on the scale, I realized, yeah, you know what, I'll give this guy a shot. Why not? You see, Jesus is reminding them He's making it clear that prior to any decision on their part, he had already sovereignly chosen them. 
This is exactly what we see all throughout the Bible. It is God who sovereignly chooses Noah. It is God who sovereignly chooses Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It is God who sovereignly chose Joshua and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah. You can just go through the whole Bible. It is God who even sovereignly chose a man named Saul who began his career by killing Christians. And yet God in his sovereignty said, you are my chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And I am going to change the direction of your life. Why did God choose these men? Why did God choose any of them? Well, it wasn't because of anything in them. God reminded Israel, the whole nation of Israel, of this very thing in Deuteronomy 7. You see, he said, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be the people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He, he's telling them, you're my treasured possession. But then he goes on to say, Listen, it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But I chose you and set my love on you because I wanted to. And just as Jesus chose these men, so Scripture makes it clear, brothers and sisters, that Jesus chooses us. We did not choose him, but by his grace alone, he chose us. You see, if you think back, we, uh, like each of these men, were busy pursuing our own goals in life. Whatever it is we thought was most worth our time. And then one day, through whatever means, Jesus came to us and said, follow me. And from that moment on, our lives changed forever. No longer was this other thing that we were pursuing at the center of our lives, but from that moment on, Jesus was the center of our lives. And it may have seemed, as we thought about it at first, that we chose him. That, that when we heard this gospel preached, we made a mental calculation and we thought, well, I guess it's worth following Jesus. I mean, after all, he's begging me to do so. I might as well. He's probably lonely. Whatever it is we thought that belittled his sovereign election. But Jesus makes it clear here and all throughout Scripture that prior to any decision on our part, he had already sovereignly chosen us to be his beloved bride. And if you look in at the end of our passage here, more than that, like his apostles, he didn't choose us on some kind of provisional basis. Look at that at the end. He, he didn't choose us and observe us for a while to see how well we would do, and then if it didn't pan out, he would drop us and look for someone else? No. He says, I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Why did he choose you, Christian? Well, Scripture's clear it was not because of anything in you. Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But you see, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. See, Christian, what is the one thing this morning in your whole life that you can be certain of? And there are probably many that come to mind, but there is one thing this morning that you can be certain of. The one thing that you know is true about yourself is that God loved you when you were unlovely. See, you and I, Christian, were loved by God first, despite our sinful rebellion. You and I were loved despite our unloveliness. Jesus loved you and I, Christian, in this way, that he gave himself for us. What did Jesus delight in? What gave him the most joy in life? It was doing what his father commanded. It was doing what his father sent him to do. It was doing his father's will. That was his food and drink. That was what he lived for. And accomplishing everything that his father gave him to do was what gave him the highest joy in the world. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, brothers and sisters, lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did Jesus enjoy the cross? Brothers and sisters, all you need to do is look at the agony that was poured out in Gethsemane to know that that was the last thing he wanted to do. Jesus did not enjoy being tortured. He did not enjoy having to have the full measure of the wrath of God poured out on him. He didn't enjoy his father turning his face away. Scripture says no. Instead, he endured the cross. But you see, he endured it for the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him what he said, it is finished, was completing his Father's will. And brothers and sisters, we can now follow our Savior in the joy of the knowledge that we are his. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for the fact that you did not leave us in our sin. Thank you that instead you rescued us. You chose us even when we were unlovely. Father, thank you that you now call us friends. And Father, we pray that you would grow in us evermore a desire to obey, to demonstrate our friendship to Jesus by following his commands. Lord, work in us that which is pleasing to you, in Jesus' name we pray.